On his second day in office last month, President Joe Biden tasked his Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, with a full review of Russian acts of aggression against the United States. From its interference in elections to its hacking of government computers, as well as its continued violation of human rights, including the imprisonment of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. We've seen this before. George W. Bush said he saw into Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's soul, forecasting improved relations. Barack Obama pledged a reset. Donald Trump famously praised Putin and sought greater cooperation. All failed, and Russian behavior toward the United States and on the international stage has only worsened. On this episode of CQ Future, we're going to explore what Biden is trying to do and what he should be doing about Russia with Eugene Rumer, the National Intelligence Officer for Russia at the U.S. National Intelligence Council from 2010 to 2014. He's now director of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Russia program. Welcome, Mr. Rumer. Thanks for coming on our show. Good to be with you. Thank you. President Biden is now embarked on a full review of U.S.-Russia policy. If Avril Haines were to reach out to you, what would be your advice? Well, uh, my advice would be um, to stick um, to the rigorous analysis that the intelligence community used to be known for and uh, have no illusions about the direction of either Russia's domestic politics or its foreign policy or the course of the bilateral relationship between the United States and Russia. Uh, I think that the late 80s and early 90s, when we had this euphoric phase, when Russia was kind of going our way, becoming more like us, supposedly embracing democracy and market, we assumed that this trend would continue. And, uh, and, 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 and that as a result of Russia's domestic transformation, we would, to a very large extent, form, um, you know, something like a partnership with similar views on the state of the world, the direction of the global economy, how to deal with various crises, and so on and so forth. Well, clearly that hasn't happened. And with the benefit of hindsight, of course, uh, you know, it's fair to say that the brief period of the late 80s and early 90s was an aberration in a relationship between Russia and the West collectively, of which the United States still remains the leader. And if you look back at the history of uh, Russia's relations with Europe, for example, throughout the entire history of the Russian state, it was almost always adversarial. If you look at the history of modern Russia since the days of Peter the Great, it's really all about controlling the space between Moscow and Berlin on the terms that today, in the 21st century, really are not acceptable to us. Russia's vision of the world is that of a sort of a concilium or something like, you know, conclave of major powers uh, that make all the big decisions. And the smaller states, basically like children, they're sitting in, uh, in the back, they're to be seen but not to be heard from. That's clearly not our vision of how the international system should be organized. You're at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. How much of a threat 
is Russia to international peace? Well, if you think about sort of macro terms, are we uh, now approaching, uh, you know, facing greater risk of a nuclear confrontation that could wipe out the entire world like we feared in the 1980s? I don't think that's the case. But I do believe that Russia is a threat to the norms uh, that have uh, been broadly accepted by the international community before and since the end of the Cold War. So, for example, invading another country because you don't like its domestic politics and foreign policy uh, and grabbing a piece of its territory, I see that as a threat to the international system. I was referring to the 2014 illegal annexation of Crimea by Russia. Right, the, the, the area of Ukraine. Right, the part that was at the time recognized by the international community, including Russia, as an integral part of Ukraine. Now, uh, you know, poisoning someone you don't like in, in the UK or even in Russia with a uh, nerve agent that is banned by uh, an international convention to which Russia is a party, that's a threat to the international security, peace, stability, whatever you want to call it. It does it, it, it doesn't qualify um, as a as, as casus belli as something that will trigger a major conflict between countries, uh, but it is clearly um, not normal. Right, Russia's efforts to assassinate uh, dissidents, basically you're referencing. Right. Right. Um, how do you how do you balance our desire for a, for peace in the world? with the need to challenge Russia on these issues to, and to challenge it on its uh, misbehavior towards the United States, its cyber t- attacks on the United States? It is the mother of all questions in dealing with Russia because clearly we're not going to, uh, you know, lob a missile into Russia to punish it for what it did in the UK in 2018 when, it attempt, when Russian agents attempted to kill a former Russian spy there. So um, it's, it's always, as you just said, a balancing act. You impose sanctions, you mobilize the international community to join you in condemnation. You go uh, after sectoral, you know, different sectors of the Russian economy to inflict uh, pain on, on the Russian government. Uh, and also you go after certain individuals who you know are responsible for the decisions if not for the actual carrying out of those attacks. You were at the National Intelligence Council during President Obama's uh, reset of our relationship with Russia. That's what he called it, a reset. What's your assessment of how it went, the reset? I hesitate to call it a success because ultimately it ended up being uh, a disappointment, I think, for all concerned. But it was something that I believe at the time was necessary to attempt because There was a new leader in Russia who was embracing a somewhat different vision from Vladimir Putin. I was referring to Dmitry Medvedev, who for four years was uh, Russia's president. And he was, um, you know, articulating a vision of a different Russia. Now, should we have gone along with that vision and, um, you know, engaged him on what he called modernization and a different approach to uh, foreign policy? I believe so. It's worth trying. Now, this was not going to be a transformational experience for us and for Russia. We always should have and did keep our eyes open to the many shortcomings, uh, you know, problems in our bilateral relationship. 
Uh, but I believe it was worth it, it was certainly worth trying. You mentioned the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Was there more we could have done to prevent that? That's a difficult question. Uh, you know, I believe that everyone was caught absolutely by surprise when uh, people in Ukraine rose up and said, we're not going to take it anymore from a very corrupt uh, and cynical uh, government. So, um, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, as I just said before. And in retrospect, probably more active diplomacy by the United States to engage not just the people in Ukraine, the leaders of the opposition, uh, the then still existing government of Ukraine. And, but I think also engaging Moscow would have been a useful enterprise, a useful attempt to bring in um, all the parties involved in that situation, you know, pretending that Russia was not involved in it was really not something that was uh, beneficial. So I think, yes, perhaps more active diplomacy, perhaps less restraint on the part of some of our politicians who wholeheartedly embrace the democratic cause in Ukraine. But I think that sent a certain signal, not that we should not have embraced that cause, but just sort of telling Mr. Putin, stay out of Ukraine. That was not necessary, nor did it prove productive, really, at the end. In 2016, President Obama was reluctant to call out Russia for its interference in our election. He thought that might be read as him interfering in the election or trying to convince voters that something was awry that would help Hillary Clinton. Should he have spoken out more forcefully? Should he have done something different at that time to combat Russian interference in our elections? Well, again, it's one of those difficult questions that are uh, hard to deal with in real time, but easy to answer. I believe, yes, he should have, but I can't hold it against him because of the domestic political um, circumstances at the time and, frankly, since then. And I should say that, you know, I have no doubt that Russians attempted to intervene, interfere in our elections, but I don't believe it's impossible to prove. It's just my hunch personal view that they were responsible for the outcome. At the outset of the Trump administration, you recommended a middle path, calling out Russia on its misbehavior, but cooperating where we where possible. Did Trump follow that path? Oh, I don't believe so. I'm not sure we even had a Russian policy uh, during the previous four years. Um, you had multiple policies that were at odds with each other. You had the president who was very invested in seemingly his personal relationship with Mr. Putin and didn't want to criticize Russia almost on any issue. Then you had, call it, you know, the sort of career bureaucracy, the people at the State Department and the Department of Defense. And they proceeded with their long-term plans, especially in the Department of Defense, uh, with uh, reinforcing our military uh, defense and deterrence capabilities in Europe uh, uh, with our NATO allies. And then you had the congressional branch. Uh, and there, you know, any uh, new set of sanctions was more than welcome. You know, let's sanction Russia for this and for that. So um, uh, I think this proposition of, you know, stand up where we have to cooperate where we must, I think that's kind of the general principle that all administrations will have to follow. I mean, it's going to be the situation, it is the situation that really, 
is confronting the Biden administration now because if you want to tackle the Iran problem, you have to deal with Russia. If you have to, you know, if you want to have a conversation about strategic stability, it has to be with Russia. <laughs> Who else? Uh, and those are going to be very difficult conversations. The big news recently was the imprisonment of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader who was previously the target of an assassination attempt, then returned to Russia and was, was arrested. It prompted a lot of protest in Russia. Yes. Is that something we can encourage or build upon? I would be very careful um, about uh, intervening, interfering in Russian domestic politics. Um, if you followed Mr. Navalny's trajectory over the years, you'd notice that he's been very, very careful not to be branded as an agent of the West. And that's something that the official propaganda has been uh, using uh, to tarnish the reputations of uh, multiple uh, Russian dissidents uh, and even the protest movement. Uh, they want to paint them as something alien, as a fifth column of sorts, being promoted and supported by the West. So I would be absolutely direct and not hesitate to criticize Russia for its treatment of Navalny, for other, there is a new report, you know, there are constantly new reports about major violations of human rights in Russia, and I think civil rights too. We should be absolutely um, direct uh, and not pull any punches on that. But I would stay away from uh, offering any kind of support uh, uh, to Russian opposition leaders uh, and encouraging that movement. Looking ahead, you know, let's look ahead four years. President Biden has had a term in office. Is our relationship with Russia improved? Has Russian behavior on the international scene improved or have things eroded? Well, I believe it's going to be more stable. There's going to be a normal policy process, which uh, apparently was sorely lacking, just completely non-existent during the previous administration. So I see that as a positive and a stabilizing factor in the overall bilateral relationship. Uh, there's going to be better coordination between our executive and legislative branches in terms of forging a, a coordinated, uh, coherent Russia policy. Uh, but on the whole, I don't expect much from this relationship within the next four years. Um, we don't have much by way of economic relations. I think bilateral trade is somewhere between $20, $25 billion a year between us. In the energy sphere, we are um, uh, adversaries, competitors, because we're both oil-producing, gas-producing, and exporting countries now want to be, depending on the overall demand. So um, there's not a whole lot there that kind of would get the necessary traction in the bilateral relationship. We'll probably get to, I hope, we'll get to some kind of a deal on Iran. Uh, but to my mind, that's going to be one of those special cordoned off areas where uh, we'll have to agree as opposed to uh, leave it uh, to, the vag uh, to, to, to the uncertainties of our domestic politics. That has to be done. It will be done. Another area is arms control and strategic stability. But honestly, I don't expect a whole lot there either. This new START treaty that we just extended with Russia uh, for five more years until 2026 is probably the last kind of Cold War era, Cold War style 
uh, arms control treaty that we're going to negotiate with Russia because it mostly deals with qualitative, sorry, quantitative and very few qualitative aspects of our strategic balance. And that balance is now becoming more and more affected by all manner of new technologies to include cyber, AI, space, all kinds of exotic weapons that Mr. Putin likes to show off during his press appearances. Um, and this kind of a framework that, had, that, that has existed for almost 50 years now, since the early 70s, that doesn't work anymore to really stabilize the, call it the balance of terror between our two countries. Uh, and I hope that we'll be able to engage with them seriously on what that future strategic balance should look like, how we should manage it. But I'm very worried that at this point, they're not inclined to engage with us seriously on this set of issues. It seems like the cyberspace is a place where conflict will continue in the future. Do you think that the United States will be more aggressive in responding to Russian hacking and Russian cyber attacks? Yes, I, I, in, in, in a sense, I hope so. I hope we'll find a way to uh, sort of combine our defense and deterrence and offensive capability into something that will send a powerful signal to Russia that this is a no-win situation that both countries and many other countries, frankly, as we have seen in some situations, will suffer. Um, it's, to be honest, I, uh, you know, I'm hopeful but I'm not necessarily uh, confident that we'll arrive at that. So I believe it's going to be an area of probably fierce competition until I fear something will happen that will be kind of the 21st century Cuban Missile Crisis where we'll say, oh no, uh, this can't go on. Mr. Rumor, thanks for coming on our show. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app.